Welcome to the QAV podcast. My name is Cameron. This is a weekly investing podcast where I chat with my friend Tony. Tony's a very successful investor. He's been doing it for about 30 years. His returns on average are about double the market over that period of time. And he's able to get those returns because he developed a system of value investing that we call QAV, quality at value. How do you find good quality companies and how do you buy them at a discount to their intrinsic value? It's basically a scoring system. We look at the fundamentals of the companies and that's what we teach our club members. Uh, In terms of the podcast, we have a free episode each week, goes for about half an hour. That's what you're listening to now. We have a longer episode, usually goes for an hour to an hour and a half. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. Anyway, let's get into this week's show. Welcome back to QAV episode 707. The day before Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day N minus one. Forgot about that. Uh, 13th of February. <laughs> yeah, I knew, I knew you would have. That's why I was Thank you. dropping it in there for you. We never celebrate it, but I should. should Neither do we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, how are you this week, TK? Very well, thank you. It's uh, hot, hot, hot in Sydney today, but lovely and clear. Oh, yeah. mm. hmm. Just grey and muggy and hot in Brisbane. What's, uh, what's been going on in the market for you this week, Tony? Oh, I've got a couple of things. Um, it's company reporting season, so at least from the a couple of stocks that I've looked at that are on the buy list, it seems to be going okay especially in the retail sector. Uh, It was only a week or two ago I was saying, oh, you know, my prediction for this company reporting season is declining profitability, but not for stocks like uh, Nick Scarley and Meyer, who both jumped on their profit results because I think most analysts were expecting there to be some downturn in retail stocks given the, the, the inverted commas cost of living crisis that everyone keeps talking about. Uh, but no, they they did well. Nick Scully jumped about 15% after its results came out. I think um, AGL, which is not on our buy list, also did the same, and Maya did the same. So, yeah, interesting interesting uh, profit season, and it always keeps us on our toes. Maya jumped from $0.66 cents up to $0.78 cents and then immediately fell back down to <laughs> $0.71. Cents. But it has crept back up over the last week. It's back up at like 75 cents now. So, yeah, uh, I was surprised when I saw that bump from Maya to what's going on and saw that their results came out. Yeah, it is interesting. Like there's a lot like, the as we know, the the All Ords hit its all-time high sometime in the last week and then fell back a little bit, but it's not by much. It's still coasting along up near the top there. There's a lot of froth and bubble going on. A lot of lot of sort of um, no positivity in the market, but it's hard to really understand why. And I've got some stories a little bit later on that we can drill into that. What's driving that? But, but what have you? What else have you got to talk about before we get into that? Yeah. Well, I think the positivity in the market is around no more rate increases, really. And then the bet is just how long it's going to take for rates to decrease. Um, you which, think there will be no, as the RBA said that? I thought no, that was still... No, that's what analysts are saying. But the general consensus is no more rate increases, which is why the oh. RBA, I think, came out and specifically said we're not committing to that, because why would they? They need to keep mm. their flexibility open. Um, it's it's funny. They kind of like do a negotiation dance with the with the journalists and the analysts 
and the and the bond traders in particular. The RBA will say one thing, the bond market will move a different way, and then journalists will ask the RBA questions, and they'll they'll duck and dive. It's it's a game that's been going on for forty or fifty years. <laughs> the five D's of dodgeball: duck, dive, dodge, duck, and dive. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to learn to be true dodgeballers. Then you've got to learn the five D's of dodgeball: dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. Something like that. Yeah. You ever seen Dodgeball? I did, but that was a long time ago. Ben Stiller. Oh, yeah. Mm. That's a great. Yeah. Got a clip. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, so the other thing that I've uh, picked up a couple of articles on in the last week, which I guess uh, resonated with me, uh, people coming out and just just having a question about the, the role that Passive investing in index funds and and particularly ETFs are playing in the markets at the moment. And um, Alan Kohler in his weekly report came out and said, with an interesting stat, came out and said that uh, the US now accounts for 70% of global equity market value, so basically market cap, uh, up from 45% in 2007 and 35% in '94 despite the US having only around 4.3% of the global population and 17.8% of global GDP. So just stop and think about that. For every dollar invested worldwide, 70% is going into the US. And of that 70%, I don't know what the stat is, but an awful lot is going into the Magnificent Seven. And um, another article which he sort of expanded on that was by a guy called... uh, Einhorn, I just look up his his first name. <clears throat> Doesn't mention what his first name is. Sorry, David Einhorn. Here we go. I've got the article in front of me, and uh, he's the founder and portfolio manager of a company called Greenlight Capital in the state states. And he said recently, this was reported in the AFR last week. He said the huge flows to passive investing, uh, the growth of algorithmic trading and momentum trading, and the more recent rise in the U.S. in particular in trading on very short-term options and similar instruments means most investors are focused on price rather than value. He goes on to say, value is not just a consideration for most investment money that's out there. Passive investors have no opinion about value. They're going to assume everybody else does the work. And so what he's basically saying is that uh, there's so much money following money, if that makes sense, that mm-hmm. if if you're an index fund and you need to keep rebalancing because stocks are getting bigger in the index, it's quite possible you end up with a situation like we have at the moment in the states, where all of the growth has come from the from seven stocks, which are now mm-hmm. hugely outsized compared to the rest of the market, and and the U as is the US is outsized compared to the world. So it's an interesting situation. I, I've Long thought that these the kind of rise of passive investing in index funds, and index funds have been around for a long time, but there's a lot more money in um, index funds now since uh, ETFs make them cheap and easy to trade. But yeah, it's kind of a feedback loop. If if um, if Apple goes up and that moves the index, then index funds have to buy Apple. So it's a chicken and egg situation. Um, what what's driving the price of Apple up? Is it the underlying value, or is it the is it the momentum in in the stock price of Apple and the index funds have to follow. And that's what Einhorn's saying. And he goes on to say that um, in the market, in a market that is pushing higher and higher on the back of 
small groups of very large stocks, and where a stock like NVIDIA can go parabolic up more than threefold in a year, despite the fact it was already a very large company, Einhorn's warning does carry extra punch. He's saying that in his fund, uh, he's moved away from value to what he would call deep value. In other words, instead of picking stocks with earnings multiples of 10 and hoping they will re-rate, he is looking for, he, he and another guy called Greenlight is looking for stocks trading on four to five earnings. Um, but crucially, Einhorn is not buying these stocks in the hope that the market will eventually recognize their value. He wants stocks with strong cash flows and low leverage that are able to buy their own stock or pay dividends to effectively guarantee a return. Hmm. Uh, sounds like what we do. Um, while Greenlight's latest investor letter shows it has added a few names recently on double-digit earnings, it tells the story of the strategy. The company's three biggest winners in calendar year 2023 were Builder Green Brick Partners, Energy Group Console, and IBM spin-off Kindrel. All trade between five and seven times earnings and rose between 61% and 112% last year. So interesting take. Um, he's he's going after even deeper value in the hope that if there's little debt and lots of cash, that they'll use that cash to buy their stock or pay dividends or do something else constructive, and it's worked for him. So, yeah, interesting sort of take on the markets. And uh, the headline for that article in the AFR was Wall Street legend Einhorn offers fix for broken markets. And uh, it's, you know, I hardly endorse those sentiments, and it's – to me, the crowded trade in the markets at the moment, apart from the Magnificent Seven, is index ETFs, and I just wonder where it's going to finish. I don't think it'll end happily. Mm. Yeah. Well, in addition to that, I saw another article in the Fin this week. The cracks deepen beneath the market surface. Investors are decidedly upbeat, but analysts warn there are disturbing currents beneath the U.S. share market's calm service. The U.S. share market continues to notch fresh records with the blue chip index, the S&P 500. Breaking through the 5,000 mark as investors continue to celebrate the certainty that the U.S. Federal Reserve will cut interest rates this year. What's more, investors are sanguine that the U.S. share market will continue to rally regardless of how the U.S. economy performs. They figure that if the U.S. economic activity were to falter, the U.S. central bank would come to the rescue with even more aggressive rate cuts. On the other hand, if U.S. economic activity remains buoyant, corporate earnings will continue to move higher, which helps to justify elevated valuations. What could possibly go wrong, Tony? It's just a win-win. If the economy does well, the market's great. If the, market ta- if the economy tanks, market's great. It's all great. It's just all good. Yeah. Um, but it goes on to say, as the bearish Societe Generale strategist Albert Edwards has pointed out, the US tech sector is worth a third of the total US equity market, which is higher than the previous peak seen in July 2000 at the height of the dot-com bubble. This, he notes, is something he thought he'd never see again. And I, I saw another chart from Bloomberg. I saw this in... Uh, read it on Wall Street bets of all places, which I still follow because it's hilarious. <laughs> uh, but it has a chart of the S&P 500 excluding, excluding sorry, tech stocks. And it's actually uh, at a historic low. If you take the tech stocks out of the S&P 500, it's at a historic low. So all of the, <laughs> all of the growth 
in the S&P 500 is coming to uh, uh, tech stocks. And yeah, mostly the Magnificent Seven outside of Tesla, which I saw a funny TikTok sketch today of the rest of the Magnificent Seven having like a uh, intervention uh, meeting with Tesla saying they were kicking Tesla out of the Magnificent <laughs> Seven because its share price has been plummeting over the last year while theirs has all gone up. Uh, I mean, it's one of these times when, you know, it, it, it reminds me of that period in um, sort of pre-COVID uh, when we started the show where if you weren't buying tech stocks, you were, you know, or Bitcoin, you were a dummy Afterpay. as an investor. Yeah, Afterpay being the big one in mm. Australia. Because it was just, you know, there was just boom times and everything was going crazy and it kind of feels like that again with these tech stocks in the US, just this bubble mentality of everything's just going to go great from here on in and we don't need to worry about value, we don't need to worry about profitability, we don't need to worry about, you know, fundamentals, it's just uh, chase chase the price as you said earlier. Well, it reminds you of Pre-COVID, it reminds me of late 90s. These are exactly yeah, the, the kinds of con- conversations mm. I was having in 98, 99. Um, mm. you know, exactly the same sort of things. What do you mean if you put .com after something, it's going to be worth a lot more than the day before <laughs> when you put .com after it? And what do you mean that all of these other uh, stocks on the S&P 500 are virtually worthless and uninvestable. They're still churning out a lot more profit than dot-com stocks are. So what are you talking about? Well, the difference, I, I guess, with the Magnificent Seven is these aren't startups. You know, um, Google, Meta, Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, they're, they're not startup companies that have just put a dot-com after their name. These are businesses, in most cases, that have been around decades. Yeah, for sure. Have no, have been very successful, have very well established products and customers, and make a lot of money until until AI came along. And AI is a startup. ChatGPT is a startup. Um, that's what's put the rocket under their share prices. Yeah, sure, they were they were very strong, profitable companies before that. And you mm. know, Buffett and Munger said Google's a fantastic company because it costs a cent to build an ad, and you can sell it for a dollar. So it's a it's a fantastic company. Um, mm. But they've just had this – the accelerator has been put flat to the metal since AI came along. That's the mm-hmm. startup. Mm. And as we've talked about before, I mean, I, I get it. AI, I think, is going to be huge and somebody is going to make a lot of money out of AI in the next 10 years. They all have a good chance at making some of that pie uh, unless something happens that a black swan comes along and uh, – you know, re-revolutionizes the industry again. Well, you made a good point. I mean, there are a lot of black swans in the world and any one of them could upset the apple cart. And and the history of investing is when something's priced to perfection, doesn't take doesn't take much of a doesn't even take a fully grown black swan to come along and <laughs> upset the apple cart. But the other point I'll make is um someone will make a lot of money out of AI, but typically it's the second person. So if you look back to the dot com bubble, um, NASDAQ went down 80% in 2001. Amazon, for example, uh, went down to you know 14 bucks from 400 or whatever it was. 
And then if you bought Amazon, you've made a lot of money, right? I guess you've still made a lot of money if you held on when you bought it at 400, but the person who made the most money bought it at 14. So when all these stocks inevitably blow up because they're all too expensive, it's the person who buys it then that A, can pick the winner and B, will make a lot of money. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, the the company that's driving all of the AI boom is OpenAI, which isn't part of the Magnificent Seven. It's not publicly listed yet. Uh, when that happens, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that share price <laughs> does. That's going to be crazy. <laughs> to the moon. But, yeah, Microsoft's, Microsoft's uh, appreciation and value mm. is, to a large degree, I think, tied to its interest in uh, open AI. So, but we'll see how that plays out yeah. over time. Anyway, we talk a lot about AI on this show and it's not an AI show. But, um, the interesting thing is, is this, I think this sort of flywheel effect of these big companies get bigger and that makes the index funds buy more of them, which makes mm. the index funds buy more of them. It's it's a, it's a self-perpetuating mm. prophecy. And again, it's kind of, when something happens to derail the valuations on these companies, whatever it is, um, mm. could be as simple as one of the AI chatbots is far more successful than the other ones. And mm. the Magnificent Seven becomes Magnificent One. You know, there's a lot of money mm. on it that's going to be lost because passive investors are going to just exit those companies very quickly and exit the stock market probably and nurse mm. their losses. Mm. Well, moving on to other things, the Woodside-Santos merger, which we've talked about few times on the show over the last year or so is dead, Tony. Mm. Dead. Value killed the $80 billion <laughs> Woodside Santos deal, according to Chanticleer in the Financial Review. When two boards have gone as far as due diligence, they are committed to properly exploring a deal. What can kill it from there is value. The great 4321 dream deal is dead. The deal which could have created a globally relevant oil and gas player that would have been able to redirect cash flows across jurisdictions and make the most money possible for shareholders failed at the most important hurdle, value. When they started talking properly, Woodside Energy and Santos knew roughly which set of shareholders would get how much of the combined $80 billion group. But then it goes on to say that... Uh, they really couldn't agree on a deal, and uh, the whole thing is just fallen apart. What do you make of that? What does it What does it mean for uh, investors in WDS and STO, Tony? Oh, I don't think it means anything in the short term. Um, we never knew whether it was going to be a good deal because they never, no one ever told us what the deal was. They were still trying to work it out themselves. Um, Woodside. You know, in the I think rightly has a very disciplined approach to acquisition, and part of that four three two one was they paid the right price for BHP oils, uh, BHP's oil business, and they um, they bolted that on a year or two ago. And Santos didn't do too bad out of buying Oil Search, which is another part of that four three two one consolidation, which gave them a lot of exposure to PNG and potential growth upside. That's always been Santos's issue is um, they haven't really unlocked that to a large extent. But it's still seen as being a, um, there on the table. So the Santos shareholders wanted to be paid a premium to merge, and the Woodside shareholders said, uh, We like you, but not at any price. And so it was probably the right outcome. 
I expect there'll be further corporate action from both of these companies. So it's a bit of watch this space now. Might not happen quickly, may. Um, but as I said a couple of weeks ago, when I did a bit of a deep dive in this um, in these two companies, uh, there's a lot of consolidation going on in the world in oil and gas. Um, the bigger companies are getting bigger. It's a, it's a bit of a sign of a declining industry, uh, and so they have to, you know, make make profits from their back end of merging with other companies and reducing their costs as much from their front end of selling more oil. And so, um, oh, you know, this the combined Woodside Santos would have been, I think, from memory, the sixth largest oil and gas company in the world. Um, uncombined, it probably means they're going to be the prey for someone um, to take to, to lob an offer. Notwithstanding, they have to get around the foreign ownership deals. I think it, I think it'd be a tough sell to to um, to the Australian government to give away control of its oil and gas uh, exports to an overseas company, but. But no hurdles are insurmountable at the right price. So um, watch this space, I guess. And it does. And mm. I think there could also be. It's possible that Santos might demerge. That's also been talked about by analysts that uh, you know take the oil out of Santos or the gas out of Santos. Particularly the gas. They think the gas might be worth more um, if it's separated from Santos than if it stays within Santos. So that could, that could happen as well. Mm. Well, both of their share prices take it a bit of a hit. Since this announcement happened, um, don't know that. Well, it's, we've got what's crude oil is what a Josephine for us at the moment. I yeah, think. it was a sell for a while, but it's coming back a bit. I think. Let me just check. Uh, Comstats, Comstatus. Yeah, so crude oil is a sell, and LNG is a Josephine. I hold WDS in one of the light portfolios, I think. I only bought it like a month or so ago. Mm -hmm. It's up about 1% since then. But So neither of them are going to be on our buy list at the moment anyway. So even though the share price has dropped, not much good to us because the oil and gas are not in a buy situation. I don't know how far away they are. I can't remember what the chart looked like yesterday. But there might be some upside there at some point. Yeah, yeah share prices yes. tanked. I mean, I think some people like you do in the light portfolio may be holding on to one or both, particularly Woodside. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't think the fact that this merger hasn't gone through as a sell, it's uh, it might turn out to be a good thing in the end. Yeah. All right, Tony, you got to pull pork for us this week. I have. Yes, this is a request. Interesting request, um, by the way. Company I wasn't that familiar with, so uh, I had to do a bit of research on this one. The company's called Money Me. M M E. This request, by the way, comes from Matt Walker, who ah, is built okay. a regression testing system. So yeah, and the other questions that we got are from his dad, Toby. So it's just the, it's the Matt and Toby Walker show. Right. Today. Good. Well, I think if they get that regression model um, running, <laughs> I think we are with a few answers to questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, um, M M E M M E uh, fintech company uh, delivering loans digitally to customers. Using a quick credit scoring system in the, in an app, um, and their products include personal loans, car loans. Although they do do the car loans through brokers, um, and they have a credit card called the Freestyle Credit Card, and they use a free credit score checker, which is backed by Equifax, the credit score company that banks use as well. And I guess the whole uh, 
process or the whole benefit of this company is that you can get access to money fast. So it's not like going into a bank branch and waiting days where you fill out application forms and having it assessed and all that kind of stuff. It's it's um twenty four seven and you can you can get a quick quick answer because the credit scoring is done there and then. Um, yeah, so they emphasize fast service and quick access to funds. Founded in 2013, uh, they listed on the ASX in December 2019 at $1.25. Early 2022, Money Me acquired a competitor called Society One for $132 million. Society One was originally a peer-to-peer lender, uh, matching private lenders who were looking for yield with borrowers who were searching for loans. And that wasn't a bad idea. However, they did have some issues with the regulators and uh, had to pivot and change their business model to be more like uh, Money Me's business model of um, lending uh, funds raised institutionally uh, to consumers. Uh, the deal included some MME shares as part of the purchase, which came out of escrow in early 2023. So there was some selling back then. Uh, mid last year, MME undertook a capital raising at, wait for it, eight cents a share to predominantly pay down debt. So listed at a dollar twenty-five, raised capital last year at eight cents a share. The founder, a guy called Clayton Howes, was diluted from eighteen point three percent down to six point nine percent, and they raised uh, the raising raised thirty-seven million dollars. Um, and I guess uh, around that time when they brought brought in some new shareholders and also following interest rate rises, the company decided to pivot to uh, to profitability from growth. So the December, uh, I've got December 23, uh, tw- December 23 half yearly result shows a profit of $6 million for the half with a reduction in revenue to $105 million, down from $121 million, and an increase in credit uh, worthiness or credit performance with loan losses reduced from 6% to 4.6% half on half. And the loan book balance is $1.2 billion. So they're they're basically saying they're not going to keep trying to grow the company as aggressively as they were, and then they're going to try and make some money out of what they've already got, which isn't a bad idea, I think. A couple of things that have happened in the last few months which uh, piqued my interest. In November, December, the auditors were replaced, and in December, the, the CFO resigned with no apparent successor. So both are potential Ooh. red flags on the surface. Uh, couldn't couldn't see a qualified audit in uh, the last annual report, so it may just be that the auditor turned over as business as usual, but it has been raised with us in the past that if we see a qualified audit and then the auditors are replaced, that could be a... Uh, and then the QA goes away. That could be a sign that um, there's an issue somewhere uh, in the figures still, but the new auditor isn't as um, isn't uh, as upset by that as the new as the old one was. Um, the CFO resignation announcement said a search for a replacement would begin immediately. The CFO had been there for four years and is moving on to other things. Um, and it could just be a small company issue that they haven't had a successor in the wings um, for the CFO. But it does seem strange that both the auditors and the CFO are being replaced late December in the company. So um, potential red flags I would raise. Uh, it's it's hard to know with a small company like this because sometimes you know things just happen. But um, the two things which are, which are not a good look usually. Uh, getting into the numbers, June twenty three numbers are still what's in um, Stock Doctor, and and so I expect there to be new numbers fairly soon. 
in the stock doctor. And they don't always reflect the numbers that I just read out then, which um, I pulled off uh, you know, off Google um, on paper, but I don't think they're in stock doctor yet. So just uh, you know, be aware of that when you're doing your own analysis on this stock. And I guess be aware in generally at this time of the year that uh, we're seeing company reports come out and reading about them in the paper, but they don't always get into Stock Doctor straight away. They can take a couple of days or a week. So just be aware of the numbers you're using if you're running analysis at this stage. Um, ADT is small for this company. It's $33,000, so it won't suit uh, people who have a large portfolio. And I'm doing the analysis on the stock price of $0.087, so 8.7 cents. And yesterday or last night it closed at uh 8.1 cents, so it was going down as I was doing the analysis. Um, even so, that, that stock price is way under the consensus target, which I thought was um, interesting. Um, and maybe the analysts know something that, that we don't, but um, anyway. Uh, going through the numbers further, there's no yield for this stock, so I can't score it for that. Stock doctor financial health and trend is strong and recovering, so we get... Um, we like those companies with recovering, so it gets an extra point for that. PE is 2.28, so very low PE, So it's and it's the lowest, and I guess the only, because uh, up until this last half, it hasn't been profitable, um, but I will score it for that. It's a very low PE. And PropCAF is only 0.33 times, so again, very, very low. Um, but this is a digital bank, so OpCash can be different to our normal industrial you know, coffee shop type companies. Um, however, there was uh, cash was uh, increased by eleven million dollars in the in the last year. So, I think um, the op cash is positive for this company, and um, it's still a, it's even though it may be different because we're really looking at the difference between revenues from cus customers being operating cash flow and then what they're paying out to the people that they're, you know, they're, they're bondholders or you know, the fund the people who've they borrowed money from to lend to consumers. That difference in the margin is really their operating cash flow. It's a bit of a different calculation, but it's still reasonably strong. Uh, IV1 for this company is 20 cents. IV2 is 19 cents, and the price is 8.1 cents, so it's well below IV1 and IV2. Uh, and we don't see this very often, but two times share price is less than IV2, which gives us another point. Net equity per share is 21 uh, cents per share. However, net tangible assets is 9 cents per share. So a fair bit of goodwill there. But um, even at $0.09, cents, we're still able to buy this uh, for less than book value. And interestingly enough, it's, it's probably what the, the market is focusing more on, given the share price is $0.81 cents and NTA is $0.09 cents a share. Um, so uh, we give it a score for that. Interestingly, earnings per share growth is minus 48%, so we give it a minus 1%. And I think that's probably what is going to be driving the share price in the short term anyway. Uh, the fact that they, they expect profit to be lower uh, going forward. Directors hold 19% and the owner is still a, um, on the board and still owns a share. So we give it a tick for owner founder. Um, three PTL centimetres negative, but it's a bit hard to see because, oh, well, the red layer shows it as being very below its sell line, but it's one of these stocks that went from $1.25 down to $0.08. Cents, so... Um, even looking at a three-year graph, it's still hard to to see because the, the last year or so is pretty flat. Even looking at the, the one-year graph monthly, um, I think it's still below its sell line. Uh, 
because uh, it's been going up and down, but you, know, the, you can draw a sell line on the one-year graph and it's still below its sell line. So sentiment's definitely against this and I wouldn't consider buying it until it changes. Uh, the last thing to look at is consistently increasing equity, which it has. So all in all, this score, the, the company score for this is very good, which is why I think Matt Walker raised that this is an issue or was one to look at. Quality is 14 out of 16, which is 88%. And QAV's score is 2.62, which is very, very high. But sentiment is negative. So uh, um, I uh, I wouldn't buy this stock until sentiment returns. You don't need to wait, I don't think, for the five-year sentiment to return. In other words, we don't need to wait for the share price to go from $0.08 cents up to approaching $1.25 again. But um, at least on the one-year graph, it needs to be a buy using our three-point trend line analysis and potentially on a longer time period than that would be good. A um, couple of other things to note about this. Uh, if I can talk about, um, uh, I, I'll call them strengths and weaknesses, but um, it's not really a, 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 that kind of analysis. Competitor plenty. Um, if people are interested in these kinds of stocks, might be a better buy. QAV score is 0.14, but it's it's um, it's not on the uh, the buy list at the moment for negative sentiment reasons. But if I look at the Bretelator, uh, it's very close to positive sentiment. And... Um, it's below its sell line, but the current month is an upturn month, and and the bread later won't take that as L two, even though it's a, a trough. It's the second trough to redraw a new line. So, it, it, you know, by the end of the month, this could well be a buy plenty with a QAV score of 0.14, and Han Money um, HMY has a QAV QAV score of 0.2, but is still um, again below its buy line, but it is increasing in price. So they they might be too. Uh, companies to look at, um, unless, uh, but also Money Me could be if it turns around its sentiment as well. Um, the other interesting thing to highlight is that Thorn Group uh, participated in the raising, or in fact, uh, somebody I think who has a stake in Thorn Group did, and Thorn Group is appearing on the share register now as, a, as having a top 10 stake. Uh, Thorn Group was on our buy list a couple of years ago, TGA, but it was delisted. And Thorn Group was um, active in this kind of area too, and in, in terms of providing um, uh, loans to customers. And it's it came out of the old radio rentals business that um, leased televisions and washing machines and things to people. So don't don't know if that means anything. If, if uh, It could mean that the person who invested in Thorn Group also thinks money me is worth investing in, or it could lead to some other kind of corporate activity. I don't know. Um, but it's, it, but it's um, yeah, it's someone who knows the space who's a, now a cornerstone investor in the company. So that's money me. Tony, did you work out uh, why the share price has collapsed from $2.20 all the way down to $0.08? Cents? Oh, I think it's got to be it? I think it's got to be debt and capital raisings would be my guess. Dilution uh, with the capital raisings? Yeah, dilution was in there as well. Um, mm. Yeah, and we've seen this before any number of times is that if the current capital raising isn't enough, then they're going to raise money at eight cents a share or diluted and um, less than eight cents a share, which dilutes things even further. So sometimes he's, uh, a small cap company can get caught in this dilution spiral and never recover because there's millions and millions and millions of shares on issue at, at pennies in the dollar. Mm. Mm. I'm not saying that will happen with money me because the QAV score is very good for it. But um, I think the question I ask myself is what's driving the share price down if the QAV score is so good? And I think two things. I think maybe the operating cash flow is is 
boosting the QAB score because it's not a typical industrial company. Um, although operating cash flow does look good and it is adding cash to the bottom line. Uh, but I think it's this um, earnings forecast of negative, what was it, 48%, which I think could be driving the share price down. Mm. I had a look at their prospectus from when they launched back in, what did you say it was, like 2019? Yeah. IPO'd. Mm-hmm. And the chairman, uh, Mr. Code, Peter Code, was really pushing their growth rates at right. the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, Money Me as a founder-led management team that has delivered a strong track record of revenue growth increasing at a compound annual growth rate of 42% from FY17 to FY19. The board and executive team believe the company's growth profile is attractive and will be underpinned by further penetrating the consumer lending sector continuing to innovate our product offering and capitalizing on new revenue opportunities. It's interesting then that you said they're not focusing on growth, they're focusing on profitability. Yeah, and that's that's really a key for any company that, that focuses on growth is what happens when the growth stops. Um, yeah. And the company's now profitable, so I can't fault it for that, and it's got $1.2 billion in the loan book, so it's actually reasonably good. It's had a reasonably successful um, career, but... Now the growth out of the business, that's giving it a different profile. And, uh, mm. you know, I'm thinking about companies like Zero, which have had a big um, stock uh, price reduction um, as they kind of grapple with how do we come off growth and, and return and go to profitability. Um, mm. And that's always the case. And that's and it's always the case that growth stocks have to go ex-growth at some stage. They can't. Yeah. Otherwise, they take over the world. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Yes. Unless it's a magnificent seven in the US, which is now attracting so much money, it's crazy. But, but yeah, um, that's always the problem with growth stocks. And and look, if it's a successful, profitable company, I think it will have its day again in the sun because it, it seems to be doing well on a lot of metrics. Um, the other thing I would say is uh, around the time it listed or the time it was founded, there were half a dozen of these kinds of companies founded at the same time or brought to market at the same time, including ones that have been gobbled up by, I think, NAB bought um, one of these uh, uh, neobanks and I think one went broke and I think, uh, what was the other one I was thinking of? Um, Oh, Latitude, the old GE Money, I think, bought one as well. Um, And Latitude operates in this space as well. It provides the the loans to buy your fridge at Harvey Norman and pay no interest for five years, that kind of stuff. So it's a, it's mm. a contested marketplace. Um, and you know, potentially we saw Society One acquired by this company and potentially there'll be more consolidation in the field as well. So that's something that people have to be aware of. Mm. Good stuff. Thank you, Tony. And thank you, Matt, for the request. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at 
qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you like the idea of value investing QAV style, but don't feel like you have the time or resources to learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But while he's not, <laughs> we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episode. And if you have any questions, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.